Abundant Life. It is good to virtually connect with each and every one of you. Again, I hope you are doing well. Uh, it is a joy and a privilege to bring a word from the Lord uh, to your community of faith on Sunday morning. A big shout out to Bishop and to Reverend Dr. Virginia Ward, two uh, heroes of mine and mentors. And so just delighted, humbled, and honored to be able to come and to share with you. Um, to my understanding that y'all are in the midst of a series talking about family and for lack of a better word or terms, rather focus on the family, if you will, which is kind of a buzzword in evangelical Christian circles. But I know that your emphasis kind of over the next few weeks. And so um, just because uh, Virginia and I talk on a regular basis, she was telling me about uh, some of the messages that she's um, been preaching and speaking on in Boston the last few weeks and months. And then Bishop told me about this series for Abundant Life as well. And uh, my heart began to prick as soon as Bishop said something. Um, because family is it's one of those important things that we don't talk about as much as a community of faith. And I say that as the body of Christ in America, dare I say the world. And so the invitation to have a conversation and to give some type of a sermon with respect to emphasis on family was just near and dear to my heart. Um, that being said, I'm going to be a little bit different this afternoon or this Sunday morning uh, as you hear this message. Typically, when we do videos, I know we like to have a kind of a clear, crisp, um, unedited version of videos that come out. We want to be able to give something that's polished and nuanced. Uh, I am not going to do that today. So this video that you see is going to be mostly unedited. If you see gaps in the edits, it's because I said something that was completely blasphemous and heretical and I had to go back and delete it. But for the most part, uh, I want to give you kind of the unedited uh, processing of me as I wrestle with this sermon and really with this word from the Lord. Um, because it's one of those rare sermons I know what I need to say. I know what the Lord has invited me to say, and I still am unsure in how to say it. And so to be completely honest, uh, I'm going to delve very much into my own personal life and own personal story. And I also want to spend a little bit of time looking at some families in First and Second Samuel and First Kings, particularly uh, the Davidic line and the lines that come before him in Eli and Samuel. So we'll look at um, Eli's family, we'll look at uh, Samuel's family, and we'll look at David's family from First and Second Samuel and First Kings. And we're going to weave that in with a little bit of my own personal story, uh, because I think there's something that uh, is missing in our theological frameworks when we think about family. Uh, family is the first institution that God erects. We see that in Genesis uh, when he tells Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply. But it's not a part of our spiritual formation, and that's really just a consequence of growing up in an individualistic society here in America. And so um, just for a few moments today, I want to talk briefly on the subject of uh, family dynamics, family dynamics. Um, in 2018, I stepped into Al-Anon for the first time in my life. It was actually January of 2018. I had just left staff with InterVarsity Christian Fellowship after being there, uh, part of that organization from 2001 until December of 2017. That includes my time as a student and my time as a staff. And, uh, you know, I have a bunch of friends here in Austin. We were having some conversations about random things. And my good friend, Matt, you know, was kind of telling my running joke about having parents that have struggled with addictions. And uh, Matt said, you should go to an Al-Anon meeting. And I said, what's Al-Anon? And he said, it's uh, family members of alcoholics. And so uh, I walked into Al-Anon. And for the first time in my life, I sat down in a room full of people that could not intellectually but emotionally articulate what it was like for me 
to grow up in a family with addictions. Um, my dad is from a small town called New Rochelle uh, in New York. It's three miles off the Bronx. He's brilliant. He graduated magna cum laude from undergrad and summa cum laude from Thurgood Marshall School of Law. He went to Howard for undergrad and Thurgood Marshall School of Law at Texas Southern University here in Houston, Texas, uh, for his law degree. My mom is from a small town called Crockett, Texas, which is about two hours east of Houston. I have no sense of direction, so we'll go with east <laughs> for this message. Um, but my mom was born in 1944. My dad was born in 1948. And that means they grew up in segregated um, societies here in the United States of America. Uh, I don't know much about my dad's side of the family. Uh, I have never had many conversations with him uh, about his side of the family. My dad, if you ask him about his family, he will tell you simply that he was adopted. Uh, if you ask my mom, and my parents are divorced, if you ask my mom about my dad's side of the family, she will tell you that uh, my grandfather, my biological grandfather, uh, shot and killed my grandmother uh, when my dad was a baby. And that my dad, as a baby, was pulled from his mother's arms. And that my father was raised by his aunt and uncle as his adopted parents. And so genetically, my last name is Word, W-O-R-D. Let me put this on pause for a moment, too, and say, man, if I was a Baptist preacher and my name, my last name was Word, like I was Sean Word, that would, that would be difficult. I, every Sunday, I would get up somewhere and preach, there's a word from the Lord. So the Lord knew to keep my arrogance in check. Like <laughs> That just didn't happen. Uh, but my last name is Watkins. That's uh, my father's adopted family's last name. That's what my mom has told me. Uh, I have never asked my dad about that. He does not bring it up in any capacity. Uh, I don't have a strained relationship with my father. I have a virtually non-existent relationship with my father. Uh, he was an only child and his dad was an only child. My grandfather didn't talk to my father. And my father does not talk to me uh, or my sister from my dad's first marriage. I'll get to that in a minute. And so he's just very quiet. Uh, he texts uh, happy birthday and Merry Christmas. And that is it. Other than that, I don't hear from my father in any capacity at all. Um, and obviously, I think because of his upbringing and the trauma that he experienced uh, and excelling scholastically in college, uh, my dad turned to alcohol very young uh, when he was in college. And he is an alcoholic to this day, and he has never been in recovery. And so I have seen uh, my father fall down drunk. I have seen him push my mom on one or two occasions. I've been in therapy since I was 25, so before y'all panic. <laughs> And like, send this baby to counseling. I've been in counseling for the last 13 years. Um, but I saw my dad do some of those horrific things. Um, he was not an abuse. He is not an abusive alcoholic. Uh, my dad is the type of alcoholic that uh, if you go with him to Pizza Hut, he will put a quarter in the jukebox. That's for all the folks that's grown. He'll put a quarter in the jukebox and he will play Papa Was a Rolling Stone by The Temptations. And then my dad will dance in Pizza Hut. Oh, I'm hard, but I'm fair, son. I'm hard, but I'm fair. That's the extent of my dad's dancing skills and the consequences of his alcoholism. So he's he's a funny drunk. I wouldn't say a fun drunk to be around, but he's funny. Uh, as in like he's somewhat amusing. But that's my dad's experience. So that's really uh, the litmus test of what I know about my father. Uh, on my mom's side, um, yeah, my grandmother got pregnant when she was 16 and back then you know it was the 40s so my grandmother and my grandfather were married on my mom's side grandmother was 16 grandfather was 18 they had two daughters and then divorced soon thereafter 
and uh, both remarried. Uh, my grandmother married someone that was physically abusive, and my mom and my grandmother have never mentioned anything about him, ever. Uh, my grandmother, when she passed away, her last name was Gilmore, and that is literally all that I know about this man, Mr. Gilmore. Uh, my grandmother passed away in 1998, and excuse me, 1999, but I never, um, I have never heard anything about this man. He is not mentioned in any capacity by my mom, by my cousins, anything of that nature. I know nothing about my grandparents uh, on my mom's side. Uh, my mom married her college sweetheart and my dad married his college sweetheart. Uh, my dad and his college sweetheart had a daughter, my sister Candace, and apparently my dad did not want children. And so while his wife was pregnant with my sister, my dad left. Uh, my mom's uh, marriage ended in the 60s, and so she had been single for a while and just thought she wasn't going to have children. My mom and my dad met at the Wonder Bar, a bar in Houston, Texas. While he was still married, my mom says that he was separated, and they began an affair. And I found this out on Google because my parents have not talked to me about these things. And in case you can't tell, this is where I'm going, both in the text and in the application for today. Uh, my parents didn't talk to me about these things. I found this out on Google that my dad divorced his wife and married my mom one month later. Uh, and so uh, they got married. Two years later, I was born. And a couple of years after that, my dad did the same thing. Decided he didn't want children and had an affair with uh, the woman who is now my stepmother. And my parents divorced. That was really difficult on my mom. And as a consequence, uh, my mom began uh, using crack cocaine. She began the drug addiction uh, when I was five and it lasted until the time I was 30 and I am 38 now. And so uh, I grew up in a home that had two parents that were addicts. Uh, my mom's drug addiction was so prevalent that I could no longer stay with her. And there was a question of if I would be put in foster care. Uh, but instead, uh, my dad decided that I could stay with him. And so I stayed with my dad from sixth grade on up until I graduated from high school. And then my dad and my mom drove me to Austin uh, and I have not seen where my dad has stayed since. I have not been to my dad's house in 21 years. I don't know where he stays. Uh, I have reached out and asked uh, to be able to visit him. Uh, he does not reply to those text messages. Uh, he will meet me somewhere from time to time when I come to Houston. So all that to be able to say, uh, that's my familial background. It is growing up in a dysfunctional home. It's growing up in a home where I think parents who, by God's ordaining design, are supposed to protect their children, but rather than receiving just protection, I received protection, but then also uh, some tremendous wounds that I did not know about really until, I'd say probably I got to high school. You know, you get to high school and uh, you start talking to the kids and you realize like, oh, wait, you have two parents in the house, whether they're biological, adopted, or step. Uh, you've got two parents in the house and y'all live in a house. And both of them have cars. <laughs> and you've never seen them drunk or high before. I I think I, I may have grown up in an unhealthy house. Like, I remember being in high school and coming to that realization as a junior in high school. Um, I got ready to graduate from college, uh, high school. I was male valedictorian of my class. There were eight girls in front of me. I was number nine. I was the most outstanding student in the district. And uh, they wanted to award me. And I told my mom I didn't want her to come. Uh, because she was still very much in her addiction. She checked into rehab. I graduated from high school and uh, she had six months clean and that continued for two years. And then she relapsed my sophomore year of college. And uh, that was very, very, very debilitating for me without question. It's one of the darkest times in my life. My undergraduate GPA reflects that. 
uh, I got admitted to Fuller Seminary on academic probation because I was so distraught about my parents. I didn't do anything in undergrad in college. And so uh, seminary was very kind. I graduated uh, with an incredible GPA for graduate school. But to get into that bad boy, whew, the saints had to pray. Um, all that to be able to say, I walked into Al-Anon in 2018. And it was the first time that I stepped into a room with people who knew what it was like to have addictions in the home, to have parents, to have spouses, to have children, to have uh, classmates and friends and neighbors and close, close personal friends that are in your circle to struggle with addiction. Uh, and if you don't know what that's like, then you can't speak to it. Um, and I bring all that up to be able to say uh, much of the information in my own journey of healing and recovery with respect to what does it mean to uh, no longer be codependent? What does it mean to um, wrestle with my own personal demons and to go back and create a life of structure and chaos so that um, the generational curses that I was exposed to, I get to break in the name of Jesus. That the unhealthy environment that I grew up in that as opposed to getting the affirmation and love and support from my parents, I didn't get. And so there are these inherent insecurities that I have that the Lord has had to disciple out of me through community, through friendship, through uh, people like Virginia, who wears multiple hats in my life, from being a sister and a friend uh, to at times being a mentor and a mama. Uh, if you know Reverend Dr. Virginia, she wears all hats when she comes in your life. Bishop does, too. <laughs> so uh, I think I had to navigate all of those things. Uh, but I had to navigate a lot of them largely because uh, my family does not talk to each other. We don't talk about those issues. Uh, as a matter of fact, my therapist and uh, my sponsor from Al-Anon, we all have unilaterally agreed that in my family, we are masters at being people who are functional addicts. In other words, you don't know that they are drinking. You don't know that they're using drugs. They can be drunk or high. They can go to work uh, and do an exceptional law case. They can teach an exceptional class. It's functional addicts. Um, and that was the environment in the world that I grew up in. Now, why am I talking about all of that? That is the longest introduction on God's green earth. Why am I talking about those things? Because when we talk about family dynamics, uh, I really only have three points today. So if there's a game that you want to be able to watch, I'm going to give you my points right now. So when Bishop texts you and asks, did you watch the sermon? You can tell him, yes, Bishop. This was Sean's points right here. I only have three points as it relates to family dynamics. That is quite simply uh, talk with your children, talk with your parents, and decide what type of a family you want to be. That's it. Talk with your children, talk with your parents, and number three, decide what type of a family you want to be. I bring these up because when we look in 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, and in 1 Kings, we are exposed to three different families, or actually multiple families. I want to highlight at least three of them. They are the families of Eli, the families of Samuel, and then the families of uh, David. And we see something masterful take place in the text as it relates to family dynamics. The first one uh, is in 1 Samuel uh, chapter 1. And that really begins ultimately with the life of uh, Samuel. And we'll see here in the text that as 1 Samuel opens up, we find out that his mother, uh, Hannah, is married to this gentleman named Elkanah. And uh, Hannah's uh, husband, Elkanah, actually has two wives. And the other wife is able to have children, but Hannah is not. 
and it creates discord between these two women to the point to where Hannah does not feel like she is worthy of being a wife. It's Near Eastern culture, and so as a consequence, because of patriarchy and the realities of those times, the way in which women demonstrated their worth to their families was to be able to produce children. And Hannah is not able to do that. And so as a consequence, uh, she does not feel like she's living up to her value. Uh, her, the other wife of Elkanah is able to have children, and she is trolling Hannah like something serious. And so Hannah makes this prayer to the Lord, and she says, Lord, if I become pregnant, I will give my son Samuel to you as a dedication to the Lord, as an offering to him, which is absolutely great and seminal. Uh, the catch of that is, however, what we often miss is that ultimately Samuel is born into a dysfunctional family. He's born into a dysfunctional family. He's born into a family where um, his wife, um, excuse me, his mother, as much as she desires to have a child and she wants to make sure that it's dedicated to the Lord, there's also some underlying issues of competition that's present, that she feels her own insecurities and her own inadequacy and a lack of her own worth, that her husband, his love is divided amongst these two women. Uh, and of course, in American society, we know where uh, affairs happen tragically all the time, both in and outside the church. Uh, whether we are kept pastor people through that process, whether there's been temptations for ourselves, or we've seen friends that have affairs and navigate the realities of that complexity. Whether it's a cultural nuance or not, when anytime you have more than two spouses uh, in a relationship, hearts and interests are divided, attention is divided. And so as a consequence, we see Samuel growing up in a dysfunctional family. Uh, Samuel is born and Hannah dedicates him to the Lord. He drops him off at the, she drops him off rather at the temple and then Eli takes care of him. And that's the second family that we're going to be able to highlight. And that's Eli. Now, Eli is absolutely fascinating because he is the priest uh, for the Old Testament. He's also uh, the last judge before Samuel comes. Samuel is the last judge that really functions as a priest and judge. And I think a little bit of a prophet as well, too. We'll get to him in a minute. But Eli, the Bible says, uh, is the priest at this particular time, and he is the person that receives Samuel, and he brings Samuel under his tutelage. Uh, Eli is a mentor of Samuel as he navigates these realities. And so Eli is the person that God has chosen uh, to be a mentor for Samuel, but don't miss it. Here's the transition point. In 1 Samuel chapter 2 and verse 12, the Bible tells us that Eli's sons were wicked men. They had no regard for the Lord. Now it was the practice of the priest with the people that whenever anyone offered a sacrifice while the meat was being boiled, the servant of the priest would come with a three-pronged fork in his hand. I'm reading from the NIV version, 1984. He would plunge it into the pan or the kettle or the cauldron or the pot, and the priest would take it for himself, whatever the fork brought up. And this is how they treated all the Israelites when they came to Shiloh. But even before that fat was born, the servant priest would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, Give the priest some meat to roast. He won't accept the boiled meat from you, but only raw. If the man said to him, let the fat be burned up first, which honors the Lord, and then take whatever you want, the servant would then answer, no, hand it over now. If you don't, I'll take it by force. In other words, Eli, the person that God has chosen to be a mentor for Samuel, his sons are ratchet. They are violating the law of the Lord. They are violating the Old Testament practices of a sacrifice. At verse 17, it says, The sin of the young men were very great in the Lord's sight. They were treating the, off the Lord's offering with contempt. And so you see this strange dynamic that was here. Let me also read verse 22 from 1 Samuel uh, chapter 2. Uh, it says, Now Eli, who was very old, heard about everything that his sons were doing to all of Israel, and how they slept with the women who started the entrance to the tent of meeting. In other words, uh, 
probably comparable to if we had uh, the female elders, or not the female elders, but the female ushers that are in our church. If you've got the pastors who are having relationships with them, uh, that's one of those dangerous uh, realities that happens tragically in our churches sometimes. That's what we see Eli's sons doing. Uh, they are violating the most sacred laws of the Lord. Notice that strange dichotomy. Eli is the priest of God. He is someone that God has chosen to be able to be a mentor to Samuel, uh, really one of the last Old Testament priests and judges that we have. And Eli does a phenomenal job of mentoring Samuel, but Eli's sons are a hot, horrible mess. And I believe largely because of that is because of the type of leadership that Eli uh, institutes and models. What I mean by that is uh, all of us who are adults in some capacity, and this is true of myself, I don't have any children, I'm not married, but one of the things that we've noticed about adults is we tend to pour out all of our energy and all of our strength into our work, whether that's uh, clergy and ministry or that's a professional field. And by the way, I think all work is ministry. You don't have to be a clergy to actually be a minister. If you are an accountant, you are a minister because you are a witness to the people on your job. If you are an engineer, if you are a teacher, if you are an underwater basket weaver, it does not matter. The work that you do is ministry. You are serving God wherever you are and wherever you work. But more often than not, we always see the external places outside of the home as the mission field, and we don't see our homes themselves as a mission field. And we see this dichotomy with Eli. He does a phenomenal job in working with Samuel and developing him, but Eli's sons uh, are wretched. And I think that's a great danger that I want to be able to speak to for just a moment. It's a great danger when we have parents that can excel in so many different fields, but their children um, don't bear witness to that type of leadership. Uh, and that's painful. That's very painful. And again, don't discount me on this. I'm not saying by any stretch of the imagination that any of the sins that exist uh, in the lives of children are a direct consequence of the parents. I am not saying that at all. But what I am saying is that we have to recognize that sometimes the world uh, and ministry really gets the best of us and our children don't, which is, that's my first point. Parents, talk with your children. Talk with your children, not to your children, not at your children, but talk with your children, especially as you see them coming of age, if they are teenagers, if even if they're kids, but especially if they're teenagers and they're young adults. My invitation to all of the parents who are listening to this is to stop and think for a moment at where you were in life when you were at that age and stage where your children currently are. Think about how your parents talk to you, about the type of environment that your parents created for you, and then remember how you felt when your parents did those things. This is something that I do with my mother all the time. Uh, my mother is 76 years old and I am 38. And so my mom, uh, she only had one child, but my mother will call me when it's pouring down raining in Austin sometimes. She will call me twice, she will leave me two voicemails, and then she will text me 30 seconds later and demand that I call her back. And sometimes, you know, I'm in meetings or I'm at work or I'm at a conference, and I can hear y'all thinking, all moms are like that, baby. That may be true, but I want you to think about what life was like for you when you were that age and your parents called you. And that's what I do with my mom. Like, mom, you know that I am older now than you were when I was born. I was like, when you were a teacher, did my dear, our, my grandmother, did she call up to Douglas Elementary while you were teaching when it was raining? She said, yes, she did. I said, and how did that make you feel? And my mom would say, that was so embarrassing. I utterly hated it. I hated the fact that she would pull me away from my job because it was raining outside and she thought that my life was in danger. I said, all right, so that drove you nuts. How do you think it makes me feel now? 
that I am the only person in my circle of friends, <laughs> if we are over to somebody's house, if we're laughing, having a great time, it starts to rain outside. This is pre-COVID. There are 10 people in the house laughing and cracking jokes. And the only person whose mom is calling them to make sure that I have a raincoat and that I'm not driving in the rain is my mother. Right? It's this idea of like learning how to talk to my mom, but then also wishing that my mom would share some of these things with me. I would love to know what it was like for my mother to be able to grow up uh, in the 1950s and 60s. She doesn't talk about those things. Um, I remember when um, a non-indictment verdict came back for Michael Brown and uh, the juries had decided, the district attorney decided rather to not bring formal charges against uh, Darren Wilson. And so I went to go see my mother uh, for that Thanksgiving evening. And my mom was the only black person that I had seen in a number of days, really weeks, that had a smile on her face. And I asked my mom, I was like, you know, kind of the rest of the African-American community is hurting right now. We are grieving, mom, but you, you're, you're very peaceful. And she said, at that time, it was six years ago, she said, Sean, I'll be 70 next month. I have forgotten the names of all the unarmed Black people that have been killed in this country. You are young. You still have much to learn about the dynamics of how America works. And for the first time in my life, um, as someone who had a bachelor's in African-American studies and history, as someone who had started a master's of divinity program at Fuller Seminary, my mother, for the first time in my life, gave me one example of what it was like to grow up in Crockett, Texas and to see lynchings take place uh, and to see people hanging from trees. She had never mentioned it before. She said it very casually and in passing, but that was virtually it. She didn't say anything else about it and she hasn't talked about it since. I would love to know those things, but my mom won't mention them. And don't get me wrong, sometimes those things are too traumatizing and traumatic for parents to bring up. But the point that I am trying to raise is my father is an exceptional criminal attorney. My mother was an exceptional teacher of 26 years. They were masters and they excelled in their fields. But when it comes to home dynamics and family dynamics, I don't know my parents very well. And that's not true for everyone, but I know it's true for a lot of you because that's just the realities of what it means uh, for us to navigate uh, American life. And so if you are a parent and you have children or you have surrogate children, you've got nieces and nephews, I wanna invite you to talk with your children. Don't be like Eli. Don't be a master of the priestly call to be a master of history and economics, I am assuming, and all of the cultural nuances of his times, and to be a mentor to everyone else and pour out that wisdom in the world. But for your own children, uh, they lack that generational wisdom that you have. Don't do that. Talk with your children. Tell your children what you did learn. Tell your children what you wish you would have learned. Tell your children what you didn't learn what you learned and experienced by failure and not by success. Uh, don't let them find out some of those lessons on their own. Uh, if you go to the Harris County Jail uh, website that keeps track of all of the convicted criminals in Harris County, uh, which is the county for Houston, Texas, it's the largest county in the state, you will type in um, Talbert A. Roder and you will find a record of my grandfather. You can type in Betty Jean LaRue Gilmore and you will find a record of my grandmother. You can type in Gloria Watkins. My mother is there. You can type in Marshall Watkins. My father is there. You can type in Betty Roder and my aunt is there. In other words, the last two generations in my family at some point have gone to jail because of uh, their addictions. And one of the generational curses that I am trying to break, if I just get out of here and I am not arrested by the Harris County Sheriff's Office, I feel like that is a good day. <laughs> that is a good life. Um, 
I shouldn't have found those things out off of Google. I wish my parents and my grandparents would have sat down with me and said, Sean, here are some of the generational curses in our family. Um, your, grand, your great grandparents struggled with alcohol. Your grandparents struggled with alcohol. Your father and I, we struggled with addictions. I'm not speaking that onto your life, but you need to be extra vigilant when you see your friends uh, engaging in uh, the utility of drugs, whether that's marijuana or any of those things. You have to be careful. And I've been fortunate that I was able to avoid all of those things. But you need to be careful when you are around people that consume drugs or consume alcohol because there is a proclivity towards addiction in our family. You must be extra vigilant. I wish they would have had that conversation with me. I wish my parents would have told me about what it was like to grow up in homes that were dysfunctional. And so as a consequence, we are codependent, meaning that we have wisdom and advice to solve everybody else's problems, but not deal with our own. Uh, that you can look out into the world and you can help everybody else with their particular problems professionally and personally, but you are not hydrated. You didn't eat breakfast this morning. You didn't make your bed. Your car is not clean. The things that you need in order to be healthy and to flourish, you don't do because you are taking care of everybody else. That's one of the consequences that happens when parents don't talk with their children. Generational curses get unleashed, but in addition to that, too, that level of rigorous self-care is not there. Um, and so that's one aspect that I wanted to be able to share. Parents, make sure you talk with your children. The second is to make sure that children talk with their parents. I will not put the onus and all of the emphasis on parents alone. Um, I think with parents, you can model that type of cross-cultural, excuse me, cross-generational dialogue and discussion. I think it's an invitation for uh, children to be able to know that they can talk to you. And I start with parents because I believe it's easier for parents to reach down than it is to ask for children to reach up. Parents have the influence. They have the power in the house and in the family. They are the matriarchs and the patriarchs. Uh, but still, there is a type of invitation that we can give to children to ask children to talk with their parents. And I think we don't see that happen, those dynamics happening uh, in 1 Samuel too much as well. Uh, there is some interaction that we have with Eli and with his sons as a consequence of their dialogue and discussion. Um, if you keep looking at the rest of that passage in 2 Samuel chapter 2, Eli talks to his sons uh, in verse 23 of uh, 1 Samuel chapter 2. He says, uh, so he said to them, why do you do such things? I hear from all the people about the wicked deeds of yours. No, my sons, it is not a good report that I hear the spreading amongst the Lord's people. If a man sins against another man, God may mediate for him. But if a man sins against the Lord, who will intercede for him? His sons, however, did not listen to their father's rebuke, for it was the Lord's will uh, to put them to death. And the boy Samuel continued to grow in stature and in favor and with the Lord and with men. Uh, now, we know that the Lord sometimes hardens hearts in the Old Testament in order to demonstrate his glory. That's one of those examples where there are consequences of sin and God does not uh, take that away. That's true of life, and we see that in the Old Testament. But again, we see this opportunity that Eli sends to his sons to have a conversation with them. And when the children get ready to talk to the father, they reject that wisdom. But at least that door is open. Uh, and so I want to say uh, to the children who are listening or to the offspring, the progeny, if you will, if they are listening, to talk to your parents. Um, I've made the attempt to talk to mine, I think, because they were not given... Uh, the opportunities and the resources and the language to be able to have those conversations, they don't have the capacity for it. One of the roadblocks that my mother and I have to this day is um, 
and our miscommunication. It's a very dysfunctional and codependent relationship. Uh, my mother um, prefers to be rescued all the time, and she's been like that since I was a child. And what I mean by that is my mother is fully capable of solving a lot of problems and addressing things on her own. She does not want to do that. And so my mom will um, say that her back is hurting or that her knee is not acting right or that her sight is going out and that she can't um, pay her bills this month. But if you go visit my mom, she can walk outside without the use of her cane and she can sit outside on a bench that's about half a mile away and she can smoke cigarettes with her friends without consequence. It is fascinating to watch. It is utterly fascinating. Uh, I went to go visit her a couple of months during COVID, a couple of months back during COVID rather, and uh, my cousin Jesse stays with my mom. And so uh, my mom was out of cigarettes and I was like, I'm, I'm not doing a pandemic. Like it's not safe. I don't want to go to the uh, grocery store to get cigarettes. I haven't been vaccinated yet. My cousin Jesse hadn't been vaccinated yet. And my mom got mad and said, I will walk to the corner store myself. And all of a sudden, her vision, which had been bothering her uh, for weeks, suddenly disappeared. Uh, her knee that had been bothering her, she walked the fastest that I had ever seen in my life <laughs> down to the corner store to be able to get her some cigarettes and came back and smoked a number of them and was perfectly fine. But then when life situations happen where she's got to be able to pay her bills, which she has the money to be able to do, she can't handle that. And so my mom, uh, when we have dis disagreements about that, read arguments. When we have disagreements about that, uh, and I illuminate those things, well, my mom says at 76 is she was not given the tools to know how to have that conversation. And it hurts me in some capacity uh, because I'm like, you're 76. At some point, um, you get to take responsibility for those things. But I also know I feel that exact same way at 38. It's very easy for me at 38 to say that my parents did not give me these things. And so as a consequence, I have not learned them. Uh, and I think that's not the right posture to have. There's a grace when we talk to our parents where we can see their strengths, we can see their weaknesses, we can see their gaps. There's a grace that we can give to our parents because they raised us, they nurtured us. And if we could look at them and recognize that our parents did the best they could with what they had. And so there's a level of uh, openness, there's a level of forgiveness, there's a level of honesty. There's a level of transparency that we know at what level to have with parents that sometimes we, not, we may not be able to uh, if we aren't willing to dialogue and to discuss with them. And I hope you hear what I'm saying in the midst of this. Uh, when parents talk with their children, they illuminate the potential for generational curses that children may not be aware of. And when children talk with their parents, there is an understanding on the perspective of life that they can have from observing their parents and talking with their parents. And there is a grace and a forgiveness and a love and a compassion and an appreciation and honoring of the parents that can happen when we talk to each other. We don't see that happening or being modeled with Eli and his family, but I think the principle is still there. Uh, Eli's family is one example of that. The next example of that really is with Samuel and his family. Uh, Eli and his sons ultimately are killed, and we find out that the people of God, they sin so much, they lose the Ark of the Covenant. If I've got any Bible readers and you're familiar with what happens in uh, the life of 1 Samuel. Uh, and as it comes to pass, I love saying that, as it comes to pass, uh, the Lord does something miraculous with the Ark while it's amongst the Philistines. Um, pretty much, long story short, uh, they put the Ark of the Covenant uh, in the same temple with um, the gods of the Philistines and the Lord just topples this statue over and over and over again overnight 
uh, the people in the town begin to have these boils, and they're like, we don't know who this Old Testament God is, but get him out of here. He is like hurting us, and he is killing our gods. And so they send the Ark of the Covenant back uh, amongst the people. Uh, Samuel actually begins to lead Israel during this time period as well, too, as a judge. And there is this one battle that takes place where Samuel is leading Israel and invites him to repent as they receive the Ark of the Covenant back. And they do that, and they defeat the Philistines in this masterful way. And the Bible says uh, that they take up uh, an Ebenezer, a stone from this uh, victory. And then Ebenezer represents that this thus far has the Lord brought us. And it's this amazing battle that takes place because we recognize that when um, in 1 Samuel 7, when Samuel subdues the Philistines and gets that Ebenezer and they get the Ark of the Covenant back, the Philistines do not topple or they are not as much of a threat to Israel as they were before that. In other words, Samuel is able to break a national generational curse with his leadership. The Philistines are always attacking Israel. They have been throughout the Old Testament. It's through Samuel's leadership, however, that Israel is able to defeat the Philistines in a masterful level, such that the Philistines are not a danger to them again. Why am I bringing that up? Because when we get to 1 Samuel chapter 8, the Bible says in 1 Samuel chapter 8 and verse 1 that when Samuel grew old, uh, he appointed his sons as judges over Israel. Uh, the name of his firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his second uh, was Abijah, and they served at Beersheba, verse 3. But his sons did not walk in his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain and accepted bribes, and they perverted justice. So the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. They said to him, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. Your sons don't walk in your ways, so give us a king. If you know anything about the theology of the Old Testament and the theology that we have now as Christians, there is a reason why Jesus is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. There is a reason why we shift from being a communal culture in Scripture where Moses goes before God and tells the people what God has been saying while we have these judges over and over and over again. And then all of a sudden it shifts to a monarchy. Two things happen. Israel wants to be like the other nations. They want to have a king ruling over them. But the second thing is that they recognize that Samuel's sons have not followed in his ways. And as a consequence, they decide that they want to have a political leader have, uh, leading them rather than a spiritual one. Don't miss it. There are very few chapters in the Bible that forever change the course of it. First Samuel chapter eight is one. Israel asks for a king. They reject the Lord like they have been doing from Mount Sinai. When Moses comes down with the 10 words, they've never wanted the Lord to rule them. And they solidify that by asking a king to rule over them. And what cements that decision is the fact that Samuel's sons do not walk in his ways. You have Samuel, who leads Israel in making sure that the Philistines never conquer them at the level in which they have in the past. Samuel leads Israel in getting the Ark of the Covenant back and bringing about a period of restoration and repentance in Israel. He does all of these major victories in public. But in private, his sons don't walk in his ways. And that's the principle that we've got to be able to recognize, sisters and brothers, that when it comes to dealing with issues of family, again, time and time again, I'm going to stress it. Parents, you have to talk with your children. And children, you have to be able to talk with your parents. Um, it is utterly similar. We have those conversations. And I think it can be something basic. We talk about the generational curses, as I've mentioned before. 
I think we can talk about the struggles of what it was like to be able to grow up in a world where um, theology was changing. Uh, I think for them, without question, you've got the theology of Eli as a priest. You've got uh, the repentance that Samuel brings about. You've got them wrestling nationally with wanting to be the people of God and also wanting to have a political leader. Hello, how are you doing? The corruption of white evangelicalism and the election of Donald Trump. What we see happening in 1 Samuel is happening right now in American society. We can talk with our children about those things. I'm not suggesting that we tell our children what to think, but we can have a conversation between children and with parents on how to think about these things. That way you give them the firm foundation and the principles of how to be able to navigate these realities. What happens if we don't talk to our children about these things? Well, I think not just what's illustrated, I think, in the life of Samuel, but in particular what's illustrated in the life of David and Solomon. And I know we are running long on time, so I will briefly summarize these and just quite simply say what we see happening with the life of David and Solomon. You find out uh, in Deuteronomy chapter 16, verses 16 and 17, that the Bible says uh, that the king, moreover, cannot take a lot of horses, the king cannot take a lot of gold, and the king cannot take many wives because his wives will lead him astray. I believe it's Deuteronomy 16 and verse 17 or Deuteronomy 17, verses 16 and 17. But what Moses says before he dies is that when Israel, when they get ready to go into the promised land, they are going to ask for a king. They're going to reject God. And when that happens, the king can't take a lot of gold. He cannot take a lot of horses and he cannot marry a lot of women because his wives will lead him astray. In the Old Testament, uh, men actually is true today, too. But in the Old Testament in particular, uh, more often than not, uh, men would marry multiple wives from different cultures for treaties and for uh, negotiations. But as a consequence, their wives uh, would lead them astray because most of these women were not followers of Yahweh. Excuse me, they were idol worshipers. And so as a consequence, they would bring these false idols into the lives of men uh, who were at that time in a patriarchal society relieving. And so it created deleterious consequences for everyone. If you look at what happens in David's life at the conclusion of, um, of Saul being king while David's on the run, the Bible tells us at different periods that David celebrates victories in his life by taking other wives. He marries uh, Abigail. Uh, he marries Ahinoam. Uh, he marries all of these different women at different points in his life at the conclusion of 1 Samuel and at the beginning of 2 Samuel. Uh, we find out that Israel and Judah, uh, the uh, northern and southern kingdom, they become one nation under David, one nation under God. And David celebrates that by taking more wives. We all know about David and Bathsheba in 2 Samuel chapter 11. We don't recognize that David took many wives before Bathsheba. And we know this, uh, I think, when you look in the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1, the Lord recognizes that, right? It says, David, who had been the father of King Solomon, whose mother, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. God still does not recognize David's marriage to Bathsheba. We see that even in the narrative of the New Testament. David has multiple wives. David and Bathsheba are ultimately married, uh, and their first son passes away as a consequence of David's sin. And then Solomon ultimately uh, is born. And if we know anything about what happens with Solomon's life in 1 Kings chapter 11, we find out the reality of Solomon uh, and his addiction to women. Uh, the Bible says in 1 Kings chapter 11 and verse 1, King Solomon, however, loved many foreign women besides Pharaoh's daughter, Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, and Hittites. They were from other nations about which the Lord had told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them because they will surely turn your hearts after other gods. Nevertheless, Solomon held fast to them in love 
He had 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines, and his wives led him astray. Uh, there's an old Jewish proverb that says, what a father whispers in the house, his son will scream in the street. And what we see David doing at a microcosm level, at a micro level, his son Solomon does at a macro level. We give Solomon a bad rap about marrying multiple women. I think Solomon does that because he sees his father do it first. That's what we mean when we talk about having fathers and parents talk with children and having children talk with parents. I'm saying all of this to be able to say, um, and I wanted to be very honest and vulnerable in the midst of talking about these things if we kind of draw this to a close, because I think the next step to be able to do is if parents are talking with children and children are talking with parents, you have to then circle back and say, what type of a family do we want to be? I think it's one thing if parents already have those edicts in place, you know, uh, you are a Watkins and as a Watkins, we do these things. Your last name is Ward, and to carry the moniker of that family means we are about the following things. It's one thing if the family has that and has passed that down from generation to generation, but if you don't have those things, I want to invite us to be able to sit down as a family around the table and do it not in one hour or in one gathering, but do it over the span of a couple of weeks. You've got time together during COVID. Do it over Zoom and have a very vulnerable and candid conversation with your children have a vulnerable and candid conversation with parents and say, look, here's what my life is like. Here's what's going on in my world. What was it like for you when you were in your 20s, when you were in your 30s, or when you were in your 40s? Help me understand and get some nuances and mile markers about where I am and what's going on in the world, how I can digest all of this information. What does it mean for me to be a man of God in 2021? What did it mean for you to be a man of God in 1981? Help me navigate these things. When we open up for that dialogue and discussion, I think something wonderful and courageous and miraculous can happen. Uh, let me say one final thing, I think, to kind of uh, before we land the plane here. There's one other family that I want to be able to highlight in 1 Samuel, uh, and that really is the family of Saul. Uh, Saul is very strange in terms of his jealousy of David. Uh, in terms of him hiding in the baggage when uh, he selected to be the king of Israel. The Bible tells us in 1 Samuel chapter 9, when they had this national parade to be able to meet him, he's hiding in the baggage, essentially, in chapter 9 and verse 22. Uh, Saul has an incredible son in Jonathan, though, and I invite you to go back and read the story of Jonathan in 1 Samuel. Jonathan probably is one of, if not the most honorable man that we see in 1 Samuel. Uh, he's more honoring and more humble and more courageous than his father Saul, I think Jonathan is a more honorable man than David. I really think Jonathan would have made a better king than David did. He's an incredible man after God's own heart, uh, as much as David is. That being said, uh, Saul is a hot, horrible mess, and his son Jonathan is not. And I say that to be able to say, I don't want to put the pressure of breaking generational curses, of having difficult conversations, of changing the trajectory of a child's life based solely on the parents. I'm not saying for children, um, if your parents are out here in these streets and you are trying to figure out what to be able to do and how to care for them, which is something that I have wrestled with throughout the course of my life as someone who is in ministry and sees God changing people, but not necessarily changing my parents, to relieve us of that burden to say that it's our responsibility as children to then go back and to rescue or save or to redeem and transform our parents. We cannot negate the fact that God is at work in our families. We cannot negate the fact that God is at work in our families. And in the same way that as crazy as Saul is, Jonathan is someone who is a person after God's own heart. 
in the same way that Eli is completely submitted to the Lord, uh, but his children are not. In the same way that Hannah is willing and able to raise a child in the fear and the admonition of the Lord. Uh, again, Eli is able to uh, follow God with his full heart in the midst of being a priest. So the fact that uh, Samuel is able to do these tremendous things in his service and honoring and leadership to God. All that to be able to say uh, is what I call the God factor. Uh, in our theological frameworks in the West, we have been taught to focus only on what people can do, and we can sometimes forget that God is at work in our families. And so I want to be able to leave us with that, that as we think about family dynamics, and there's an invitation for parents to talk with their children, there's an invitation for children to talk with their parents, for y'all to sit down and figure out what type of families do we want to be, don't underestimate the reality that God may be speaking or that God is speaking in those conversations. And I want to pray that you would listen for the voice of God in the midst of that conversation or those conversations, rather. I think that there's something that God wants to be able to do in and through our families. Uh, you look at the brokenness that's happening in the United States right now, and not just in the African-American community, but really around the country. And that brokenness is stemming from broken families. Um, I think when our families are healthy, it changes the game. Healthy families influence healthy schools. They influence healthier politics. They influence um, healthy forms of government and work and governance. Uh, I, I think that when our families are healthier, it changes the dynamics of American society as a whole. And a large part of what's going on in our country right now is because our families aren't healthy. And so hopefully this makes sense. Uh, I wanted to be a little bit of like electmon. Electmon kind of starts as a lecture and kind of closes as a sermon. Um, because family dynamics are real. And I didn't want to come in and just kind of preach to you all, but I wanted to say, hey, here's where I am in my own journey uh, as a son who longs to and tries to talk to his parents and is grateful for the surrogate parents in my life, uh, as a man who gets the opportunity to pastor people, uh, parents who are worried about their children and have spent a lot of time talking to them and talking at them as opposed to talking with them. And for parents and children who have some type of a relationship, but the question becomes, what do we do if we've got this relationship intact? How do you sit down and write a covenant statement as a family that says, listen, here's where we've come from and here's where we're going. I will close with this and then we'll be done. Uh, Bishop T.D. Jakes, a number of years ago, was interviewed and they asked him, uh, what do you want from all of this that you're doing? What's your ultimate goal? Uh, is it just to build a, a mega church and then retire in Dallas? Do you want to be satisfied with all of the books and all of the conferences? What's your end game? What's your end goal? And Bishop T.D. Jake said very simply, I want my grandkids to kiss my picture. I want my grandchildren to kiss my picture. He said, I want them to look at the history of our family and see how crazy things have been. But then when they come to my life, they recognize that the family makes a course correction, that it changes, that our submission to God, to his purpose and plans change, uh, and that their lives are different because I said yes to following Jesus. I want my grandkids to kiss my picture. I don't know where this man came from, but I'm sure glad the Lord sent him. Sisters and brothers, that's my hope and my prayer for all of us, that if parents are wayward and they eventually, the Lord brings them to repentance, if children are out here in these streets and then one day they remember the tutelage of their parents uh, for the opportunity for us to be able to dialogue and discuss. May it be said of each and every one of us that children and grandchildren and parents alike, can we can look over the course of our lives and by faith believe that God alters the course of our lives uh, because we say yes to him in increasing ways. Parents talk with your children. Children talk with your parents and together 
decide who you want to be as a family. I believe that God is speaking in this time unlike ever before. Uh, and I hope uh, and pray that God changes you, not just in ways that you want and need, but ways in which they blow your mind. That when you look back over the course of your lives, you are healthier, holier, uh, and happier than you've ever been because you recognize that God is at work and there is fruit that will be born in saying yes to him in every arena of life, including uh, the discipleship that happens in your families. Uh, let me pray for us. Lord, I um, feel the tension uh, even in sharing in these things, uh, the desire to just be completely vulnerable uh, and broken before abundant life. Um, because my heart aches when I think about these things as families. Uh, I see families changing and repenting and being transformed. Uh, I see parents who long to see their children follow the ways of the Lord that may not be. I see children who have grown up in dysfunctional homes and have made a decision to be different uh, because their parents were models of what not to do. Um, Lord, I pray selfishly uh, the breaking of generational curses in my own family and for every family at Abundant Life. In the name of Jesus, God, that chains would be broken, oh God, that strongholds would be loosened, Lord, that generational curses would be broken in your name, Lord, that things that have plagued generations, the third and fourth generation, by the power of the blood of the Lamb, in the name of Jesus, that those strongholds would be broken, God. Lord, the children and parents, Lord, and grandchildren would walk in the newness of life and the new freedoms that come, Lord, because strongholds have been broken. God, I pray that you would loose lips, God, and loose tongues uh, and dialogue and discussion for with parents and with children uh, at Abundant Life in the name of Jesus, Lord, that conversations can be had about what it means just to be a family that follows God. And Lord, whether those conversations are fruitful from day one or they're fruitful over the course of time, I pray that the dialogue and the discussion would begin. Uh, I pray for a posture of humility uh, with parents. I pray for a posture of vulnerability with children and that together iron would sharpen iron, that one can chase a, a thousand, but two would put 10,000 to flight. Lord, would conversations be seasoned with salt and would be edifying to you? And God, ultimately, that you would get glory uh, from these generations as they dialogue and discuss. So you have us together during this pandemic for this particular time. So I pray that we would maximize the moments uh, in your name, Jesus. We pray. Amen. Take care, Abundant Life. Hope you have a great and fantastic week.